In April, 2014, South Korea suffered a horrific tragedy when the Seawol Ferry sunk, leading to the death of over 300 people, most of which were high school children. In the days and months that followed, it was discovered that greed and corruption within the company that owned the ship and government officials were to blame for this disaster. The company focused on profits, had added additions to the ship, affecting its ability to steer safely, overloaded it, and repeatedly bribed officials to look the other way. Their greed left a nation in mourning and hundreds of people in insurmountable grief after the loss of their loved ones, many of them being children. Desperation and anger. At Jindo Stadium, hundreds of relatives and passengers on the campus. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the Seawall Ferry disaster. Due to the nature of the event we're gonna be discussing today, this episode discusses death and dying multiple times throughout. If this is something you're not in the headspace for, I highly suggest skipping this episode. Also, as an aside, the quotas used from others in this episode have been translated from Korean to English, so they may not be exact translations, but we tried our best. With that being said, let's get into it. The Seawall Ferry sank in April, 2014, but unfortunately, the sinking of the Seawall is not even the first tragedy in South Korean waters due to overloading. On December 15, 1970, a ferry named Nam Young departed from Jeju Island and headed to the Busan port. The ship was carrying over 300 people, including the crew, and was reportedly overloaded. During the passage, it sank, killing 326 people. 20 years later, on October 10, 1993, the Shohei Ferry sank in South Korea. Once again, the ship was reported to be vastly overloaded. However, many claim that harsh weather conditions were also to blame in this event. Of the 362 passengers and crew that were on board, only 70 people were rescued, leaving 292 people behind to meet a watery grave. South Korean shipping companies apparently have a bit of a history of overloading, and the seawall sinking was actually no different. But that was not the only thing to blame in this senseless catastrophe. The seawall ferry was bought by Chonhijin Marine in 2012. At the time the company bought the ship, it already was 18 years old and falling apart. It was sold for 11.6 million won, which is a little under 10 million US dollars. If the ship was purchased brand new, it would have cost roughly 60 billion to 100 billion won, which is about 50 to 85 million US dollars. So instead of paying for a safer, newer ship, the company chose profits over safety and continued to do so time and time again. They made massive renovations to their old secondhand ships. You would hope these renovations were to make the ship safer and more aesthetic too, but they were not. Instead, the renovations just added more decks so it could accommodate more passengers. The additional deck severely impacted the center of gravity, which made it more inclined to tip in turns or bad weather. It was reported the decimated overweight ship received its license by presenting fake documents to the Korean Register of Shipping and continued running due to fancy dinners and travel provided by the company to the regulators. By the time the incident happened, overloading on the seawall had become routine despite the risks and history of it. The ferry had made passages while overloaded roughly 139 times since March of 2013. On the day the ship sank, the ferry was carrying over twice the legal limit of cargo on its decks, including cars, trucks, and shipping containers. The operator earned more money from cargo than it did for passengers. While a passenger earned the company roughly $60, a 4.5 ton truck earned them approximately 500. So the company stood to make thousands more by overloading the ship. To account for the additional cargo, the ferry had released most of the blast water. 
The last water is held in the tanks and cargo section of the ships and is meant to help keep it balanced and stable through maneuvering. Removing this makes the ship exponentially more difficult to steer. And considering the center of gravity was already severely thrown off by the dangerous addition of more decks, this was a recipe for disaster. There were also reports that the captain of the ship had requested a repair of the steering gear on April 1st, only 15 days before the accident. But the service provider reported that they had not done any repair work. So now we have an old, overloaded, poorly built, unsteerable ship carrying passengers across deep water. Unfortunately, it seems what came next was just a matter of time. And you might be thinking, hey, there seems to be a lot of issues here. Why in the world was it even allowed to sail in the first place? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Seawall had received its license from bribery and false documents. The people who conducted the safety checks also did so very haphazardly. The inspectors did safety checks from the shore and never actually stepped foot onto the seawall. They merely watched the ship as long as it was not sitting too low in the water and they said nothing and they believed it was good enough to sail. This means that inspectors never weighed the cargo and didn't know the water had been disbanded. Maybe if they had, this tragedy could have been avoided. But if that wasn't bad enough, the crew also lied about the weight of its cargo and did not secure the cars, trucks, or shipping containers on the decks properly. Instead of securing them with chains, as you would assume they would with larger things that weigh multiple tons, they secured them with rope. Again, since the inspectors were never actually on it and never weighed the ship's cargo, these were things they were unaware of. Greed, human error, and the bare minimum of safety inspections of the seawall were all major contributors to the horrific events that later transpired and the tragic loss of hundreds of lives. Now that I think I've given you a pretty brief but decent overview as to what we're gonna be getting into today, I'm gonna be placing the sponsors for today's episodes right here. The reason I'm doing this is for two reasons. One, this is obviously the precursor to let you know that after the commercial break, things are going to get a lot more delicate, disturbing, and of course, we're going to have to talk about what happened that day. As always, a big thank you to the sponsors that allow me to create this type of content. Even if the content is demonetized on YouTube, I'm very grateful that they are able to step in so I can continue to pay my amazing team that helps me put together these episodes. So with that being said, here are the sponsors. We are all looking for simple resolutions this year. And one easy fix to up your fruit and veggie game is with Daily Harvest. It's the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies in your stomach every day. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. And conveniently, it stays fresh in your freezer. Now, I've talked about Daily Harvest and their amazing smoothies for months and months and months on end. And one thing they have, which is oat bowls, and I love overnight oat bowls, but for some reason, my ding dong little brain thought for the past couple months that their oat bowls were something you can only do with hot water. So when I finally decided to go online and read their little directions when I was refilling my box for what I want for the upcoming month, I saw that you could do them as an overnight bowl. And uh, yeah, so I did that. And guess who's addicted to their overnight oat bowls now? Me. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. So go to dailyharvest.com slash casket and get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash casket for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash casket. When you're cleaning your house, do you ever notice how much plastic your cleaning products use? Estimates say five billion plastic cleaning bottles are thrown away annually. 
That's a lot of clean floors and a lot added to the Pacific garbage patch. But with Blueland's refill cleaning system, you can reduce your waste and your guilt. With Blueland, you buy the bottle once and refill it forever. And the bottles, by the way, they're very beautiful, they're very aesthetic, they're labeled, and they're color-coordinated with their scents. Like the uh, all-purpose cleaner is a lemony scent and it's a yellow bottle. I love it. It's too easy, it's beautiful, it's perfection. Oh, and besides the beauty of the bottles, the stuff actually works really, really well. I think I mentioned that I'm in the process of moving. So the new place that I'm moving into, I have been hands and knees scrubbing the floors, scrubbing countertops, scrubbing everything. Cause I don't know how well it was clean before I moved in, you know what I mean? So I am cleaning the ever living daylights out of that. And I've been using my Blueland products and holy heck, these things are amazing. And it makes the house smell really great after. Blueland has something for every aspect of your home, by the way, from their best-selling clean essentials kit to their hand soap duo, laundry, dishwasher, and even toilet tablets. They're super easy. Everything stays in reusable packaging and the refills come in these little like paper packets that you can recycle or compost. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com casket. That's 20% off your first order of any Blueland products at blueland.com casket. Blueland.com casket. On the morning of April 16, 2014, the Seawall Ferry began its last voyage. Aboard the ship was more than two times the legal limit of cargo and 467 passengers. A vast majority of the people aboard were high school students from Dan Wen High School on a school trip. The captain of the ship was Lee Jung Sok. According to Chang Hai Jin, Lee was filling in for the normal captain who was out on leave, but he had over 40 years of experience. However, when the incident took place, he was not the one steering the ship. Instead, a third mate named Park Hangul was the one at the helm as Seawall went through fast currents and a cluster of islands. He only had six months experience. Captain Lee had reportedly given the third mate instructions on the route, then briefly went to the bathroom. While the captain was away from the helm, Park was battling strong currents, made a sharp turn, and unfortunately, the ferry suffering from steering, balancing, and overboarding began to keel over at just before 9 a.m. As it turned, the cargo, which again was only secured with rope, slid across the decks of the ship, which made it turn further onto its side. From this point forward, chaos ensued aboard the seawall. At this time, an announcement came over the intercom for passengers to remain in their cabins. Passengers were told, don't move. If you move, it's dangerous, don't move. As the ship continued to keel over, passengers reported that students were falling over and crashing into things and bleeding. A horrific and heartbreaking video that was released a few days after the incident shows students below deck as the ship begins to sink. Some who may not have understood the gravity of the situation initially were joking, but others were immediately riddled with fear. One can be heard saying, dad, I don't want to die. As time goes on, students are shown struggling to put on life vests as another announcement can be heard at 9.08 AM saying, we're again announcing for passengers who can wear life vests, please wear them now. Never move away from your places. Water quickly came into the ship and some of the passengers escaped despite the announcement to stay put. Others unfortunately became trapped as water began to rise. Students sent text messages to their parents. One read, dad, I can't walk out. The corridor is full of kids and it's too tilted. And another text message read, I can't see a thing, it's totally dark. We are not dead yet, so please send along this message. 
While the passengers were trapped at the bottom of the ship, the crew, captain, and Coast Guard made terrible decisions that horribly impacted the ability to save people on the ship. The Jindo Control Center, which is meant to track vessels, did not have any knowledge of the events as the ship first encountered problems at 8.49 a.m. While there were meant to be two officers on duty at the Coast Guard Vessel Traffic Service Center, there was only one, and he did not know that the seawall was in distress. Instead, the West Sea Coast Guard was made aware of the situation by a high school student who unfortunately was later found dead in a 119 emergency call. But they did not arrive onto the scene until 9.30 a.m. Even after arriving onto the scene, Kim, the captain of 123 and a person in charge of the rescue efforts did not issue an evacuation order. Instead, it took them 47 minutes to announce that passengers should evacuate. But by that time at 10.17, the deck of seawall had already completely submerged. To make an absolutely terrible situation even worse, the captain, Lee Jun-sok, abandoned the ship while passengers were told to stay put. According to him, he held off on the evacuation order because he was worried about the cold and the current. However, a video shows him emerging from the ship in his underwear and being rescued by the Coast Guard. He was rescued at 9.45 a.m., a full 32 minutes before the rest of the passengers were told to evacuate. As rescue efforts continued, poor and incredibly disastrous decisions continued to be made. As the seawall became completely submerged by 10.34 a.m., there should have been barge-based underwater search efforts. A barge is used as base camp for underwater search efforts. They can be fitted with decompression chambers and diving guidelines. At the time, there were 22 barges in the water nearby, but instead the Coast Guard chose to wait for a barge called Libero, which was still under construction. Another barge, the 2003 Guillemho that arrived on the scene was too small to use. Additionally, search vessels were already on scene and could have helped, but they never received any orders from the Coast Guard to initiate rescue operations. The underwater demolition team and the ship salvage unit were also on the scene, but without a barge, they couldn't proceed with their operations. The disastrous decisions made by the captain, crew, and Coast Guard unfortunately cost hundreds of people their lives. Horrifyingly, the education officials, Gyeongji province had sent messages to parents at 11 a.m. And it said that they were assuring that all of the students had been rescued. And I'm not sure if this was a miscommunication or a purposeful lie, but it was unfortunately very far from the truth. As the night continued, rescue efforts were paused at 7 p.m. because of the dangerously strong current and lack of visibility, but they continued their search at 12.20 a.m. In the days that followed, only 179 of the 400 passengers had been rescued and rescue divers continued their efforts. It took two days for divers to successfully swim into the ship. And at this time, 271 people were still considered missing and rescuers were pumping oxygen into the ship, hoping that to those that were missing, presumed trapped underwater, might survive in air pockets. On the days following the disaster, multiple people issued apologies to the victims and their families and a promise to do better. The president at the time, Park Jun-hai, vowed to review the policies that led to this incident and to do a complete overhaul on the safety structures in place. Park vowed, I will make sure that all this sacrifice was not for nothing by removing the layer after layer of corruption that has accumulated over the years and by making South Korea a safe country. The Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries also responded and said that they planned to revoke the company's license for their routes. While the organization usually waited until investigations were completed to revoke a business license, given the gravity of the situation, they did not follow normal procedures and revoked the company's license immediately. After nearly a month, recovery efforts persisted, leading to the death of one volunteer diver in May. At this point, it was reported by the Guardian that 260 were confirmed dead and 40 others were still considered missing. 
The search efforts persisted for six months. 304 people were confirmed dead. Nine were still considered missing as the search drew to a close. The multiple failures of the captain, crew, and the organization led to a massive investigation. In this investigation, the overloading, steering, failure to identify cargo weight, dumping of ballast water, and bribing of officials that I mentioned earlier were all discovered. Multiple people were arrested in the days following the incident, including 15 members of the crew. The captain and crew were arrested mere days after the sinking of the Seawolf Ferry, and their charges varied from negligence to homicide. The chief executive of Chonghe Jin Marine Company, Kim Han Sik, was arrested in May and faced charges, including causing death by negligence. After his arrest, while speaking to the press, he apologized saying, victims of Seawolf Ferry and their bereaved families, I am sorry, I am sorry. I have committed a crime that can only be paid back with my life. Kim's arrest came after investigators had discovered that the company had lied about their cargo and severely overfilled the ship, as we had mentioned earlier, contributing to the disaster at sea. 11 other officials were also arrested in connection with the disaster, including people from a cargo company and the Korea Shipping Association, the people who were responsible for port inspections. The cruise trial began in June of 2014 and focused primarily on the captain and crew's abandonment of the ship while it was sinking, while the hundreds of passengers were ordered to stay inside and ultimately ordered to die. The captain and three other crew members were facing the charge of homicide through willful negligence. Members of the victim's families were in the courtroom as the trial got underway. Prosecutors went into the trial asking for the death penalty for the three facing homicide through willful negligence. But the other 11 members of the crew under trial that were facing charges of criminal negligence and maritime law violations faced significantly less severe sentences if convicted. The defense lawyer for Captain Lee stated in his opening statements that it wasn't like he had a grudge against the children, so it's difficult to accept the prosecution's argument that he willfully neglected the duty of rescue and escape to save himself. And to just insert myself here, because thus far I have been holding back, this was a story that when I saw the sinking happen essentially live and I was watching the rescue efforts, it was something that made me like bawl my eyes out and cry because I couldn't understand why someone would do this. And as time went by and more and more of this corruption and negligence just showed itself more, it made me very angry, angry for those families who can't see their children anymore and angry for people to make statements like this in court. Because the fact is here, I don't think that he had a grudge against the children. What I did think is that he abandoned ship without helping passengers, without helping members of his crew. And he did so to take care of himself and put himself above every other person. He didn't care about rescuing anyone else. He was perfectly fine with leaving them behind. And he did leave 304 of them behind. Years to life in prison. The South Korean captain of the Seawall Ferry, which sank last year, has been handed a tougher sentence. An appeals court finding him guilty of murder. Claire Murphy has more. The conclusion of the appeals process saw the court in Guangzhou. A few months later, in October 2014, the trial of the crew and captain ended. Upon the ending of the trial, Captain Lee said, I know I cannot get out of prison, but I must not let my children and grandchildren live being called family members of a murderer. He also apologized to the families and said that he prayed for the victims of the disaster and said, I committed a grave sin, I'm sorry. A month later in November, 2014, the captain and crew received their sentences. At this point, seven months after the Seawolf Ferry had sunk, the Guardian reports that 295 bodies had been recovered, bringing the death toll to 304. Nine people were still considered missing. After their trial, Captain Lee was not convicted of his original charge of murder. And instead he was found guilty of gross negligence, taking the death penalty off the table. Instead, he was sentenced to 36 years in prison. 
Park Ji-ho, who is the chief engineer, was sentenced to 30 years for homicide for not assisting two injured fellow crew members. The remaining 13 crew members who stood trial were given sentences that spanned between five to 20 years in prison. After hearing the sentence, family members of the victims in the courtroom responded with disgust and disappointment. One was even reported as saying that the judge should free the captain and crew so they could punish them ourselves. The prosecutors of the case said they would appeal the decision of the courts for the crew members and called the rulings disappointing, believing the captain and three other senior officers deserved to be convicted on homicide. They did as promised and appealed the decision. In April, 2015, the appeal court found Captain Lee guilty of murder and sentenced him to life in prison. It wasn't the death penalty decision that the prosecutors were originally after, but it was the conviction they had wanted. However, to the dismay of many prosecutors, the other 14 crew members received lighter sentences in the appeal rather than tougher ones. Their new sentences now ranged from 18 months to 12 years in prison, which was a stark contrast from five to 20. According to the judge, the lesser sentences were meant to account for the crew merely following orders. While Captain Lee did receive a harsher conviction and sentence than he did originally, the grieving family members of the victims were still unhappy with the results of the appeal. They staged a protest outside of the court and one father who spoke to the press said, he should have received the death penalty. Imprisonment for life, they want to give life sentences to a person so that he can peacefully die when he is old. It is worth mentioning that at the time of this appeal, Captain Lee was already over 70 years old. So while the original sentence would have most likely been a life sentence for him anyway due to his age, the change in his conviction and sentence was meant as a gesture to fully acknowledge the horrific action by the captain. The trial of Kim Han Sik, the CEO and officials from Union Operator and the Korea Shipping Association also had its start in June, 2004. When it ended in November, the CEO and other officials were found guilty of accidental homicide, manslaughter, and Kim was also found guilty of embezzlement. In comparison with the captain and crew of the seawall, the CEO received a far lesser sentence for his manslaughter and embezzlement conviction. Kim received 10 years in a prison, even though his company's decision to overload the ship and add unsafe decks massively impacted this very sinking event. In his trial, he had told the court that he had known the ship was unsafe and even suggested selling it, but he was ignored. And yes, while the actions of the crew and the captain largely contributed to the death of hundreds of passengers, if the company had never bought an 18 year old ship, added unsafe decks and consistently overloaded it, this disaster may have never even happened. It seems counterintuitive that the crew and captain would receive harsher sentences than the people that actually caused the event. As those trials were underway in June, 2014, authorities attempted to locate and arrest Yu Byung-un, who was the owner and manager of Chonghae Jin Marine Company at the time of the seawall's sinking. He and his family were charged with embezzlement, breach of trust, and tax evasion concerning their company. According to prosecutors, Yu and his family had been embezzling substantial sums of money from the company. They had placed a strain on their finances and they made up the difference by spending a shockingly small amount of money on the training and staffing of their crew. It was reported by the prosecutors that the crew members received hardly any safety training and that they had only spent $525 on training for its staff. Additionally, the staff was overwhelmingly composed of contracted short-term workers. Of the 15 who were arrested after the incident, nine of them were on short-term contracts. In a relatively shocking twist, Yu was actually found dead on June 12th. However, it took police until July to identify his body. BBC reported that when his body was discovered, he was wearing an expensive Italian jacket. Next to him was a copy of the book he had written, an empty bottle of a shark liver oil health tonic manufactured by a Yu family company, and several empty bottles of alcohol. 
While you might think that these would be clues to the body being discovered that it was you, police originally concluded that it was a homeless man and didn't realize it was him until matching the DNA to his brother. Police stated he had been hiding in his cabin 2.5 kilometers from where he was found. They also found two suitcases that had 830 million won, which amounts to about $810,000, and another with $160,000. While this obviously ended the massive manhunt for you, the search for one of his sons in connection with the charges continued, and his other family members went on trial and were convicted of the charges against them. Yu's youngest son was convicted and sentenced to three years of prison after being convicted of embezzlement. In March, 2017, three years after the sinking of the Seawolf Ferry, the ship was finally raised from the sea. As the ship was raised from the ocean floor, relatives of nine victims who were still considered to be missing and of the other victims mourning the tragic loss of their children, siblings, or other family members held a memorial service for their loved ones on a boat. Originally, as the seawall was being raised, authorities believe they may have discovered the bones of a victim, but indeed after testing, it was discovered that the bones were from animal remains. A grieving mother of one of the missing people told the press, the ship has come up, but not the nine people inside it. Please don't forget there are people inside the rusty, dusty, and smelly wreckage. Please do the best and let us bring them back home. Another parent expressing the immeasurable grief he still felt after the loss of his son said, my son was the 220th body to be found after 16 days. I can't imagine how the children were shouting and calling for their mother and father on the ship. I feel sorry for him. And at the same time, I am sorry I couldn't be there. He continued to say, my days stopped on April 16th, 2014. I would do anything to turn the clock back to April 15th. As with any catastrophe such as this, parents of the victims continued to grieve and their grief was accompanied by the anger and frustration that this disaster could have been easily avoided if it weren't for the greed of the company and the lack of urgency for authorities to raise the ship before this. While the engineers worked to raise the ship, they did so extremely carefully to ensure that it didn't break in half as they planned to complete a more thorough process for searches for the nine people missing after it had been raised. The parents of victims looking on expressed their frustration that it took three years for this process to unfold and rightfully so. One said, it's the first time in three years I've seen the ferry with my naked eye and it's hard to understand why we couldn't lift it before. The priority is to find the missing bodies and to do the least damage to the ship so we can find the truth and the reason it sank. A month later in April, the remains of four out of the nine still missing were discovered after three searches. Originally, the searches were planned to end in August, but the families of the missing people demanded the searches continue. Unfortunately, as the final search was conducted in October, 2017, no other remains were found and five people remain missing, including two students, a teacher, and one father and his son. A few years later in 2020, the son of Yu Byung-un was finally found in New York where he had been hiding out for years. Yu, who also goes by Keith Yu now, had been a fugitive from the law for the last six years before he was finally arrested in Pound Ridge, New York. Like his other family members, the South Korean government is charging Keith Yu with manslaughter and embezzlement. Since he was found in the United States, he would have to be extradited to South Korea to face his charges. He's been fighting his possible extradition since his arrest. His lawyers argue that his charges pending in South Korea do not warrant his extradition because he's being used as a scapegoat and he will not get a fair trial if extradited. Despite this, in November, 2021, a judge in New York announced that she would not block South Korea from seeking extradition and rejected his lawyer's claim that his charges did not warrant it. However, under a 1998 treaty between South Korea and the United States, it is not a judge's decision whether or not to have him sent back to South Korea. 
Rather, it was the decision of the US Department of State. Since this, there's been no announcement of whether or not he will be sent back to Korea or remain in the United States. In the years following the sinking of the Seawool Ferry, the government remained true to its promises they made and passed new laws and regulations to prevent another terrible disaster similar to this. One of the new regulations requires truckers to have their cargo weighed at government licensed weighing stations. The hope is that this would prevent excess cargo from finding its way onto ships. Unfortunately, people still find their way around this law. According to a report released by the New York Times on Jeju Island, officials have found cheating at almost every step in the cargo weighing process. Covert operations by the Coast Guard found that 21 trucks would routinely add more cargo after going through the weighing station near the harbor. Additionally, officials at government licensed weighing stations had been issuing certificates to drivers without weighing the trucks. The Coast Guard also found that an official of a cargo handling company had fabricated more than 1400 weight certificates. Despite these alarming findings, the Coast Guard said this wasn't enough evidence to further any investigation. In an attempt to address the cheating, the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries began to conduct random checks on the trucks that were going into ports. But they only reported 117 randomly selected checks in one year. With the random checks being so few, it's extremely possible and even likely that more trucks are cheating the new regulations, placing the lives of people in danger once again. New regulations also address the serious issue with lax inspections on the ships, which had previously been done just by looking at the ship from the shoreline. Now inspectors are required to board ferries. They also increase the number of inspectors working from 73 to 142 to hopefully account for burnout and free up more time for them to do inspections thoroughly. While this may address some issues, the inspectors still can't weigh the cargo on board. Originally, experts had advised the government to build equipment to weigh cargo on the docks, but those were dismissed because of lack of space and the fear of slowing down the load. Despite the additional precautions, the continued cheating by truckers, government officials, and companies persist, to the dismay of both the families of the Seawool Ferry victims and other experts. One professor at Mokpa National Maritime University in South Korea said that the evidence of cargo cheating is proof that South Korea remains insensitive to safety. He warns that the continuation of cheating and the limited amount of random safety checks are not enough to prevent another tragic event, and the inspectors need to conduct safety checks more often to impose stricter punishment for those that skirt the regulations. The family members of the victims have also expressed their displeasure with the government's handling of the disaster and do not believe that the new measures will prevent another. Instead, they continue to call for government officials to be punished for their culpability in the tragedy and the corruption. Jang Hoon, a parent of the 17-year-old who had died on the Seawool Ferry said, we know who killed our children, but we are not able to punish them. He and many other parents and family members believe that until top officials are being held accountable for their actions, the country will continue to face these events and will never truly be safe. The sinking of Seawool Ferry led to the death of 304 people, most of them being high school children. The corruption, greed, and selfish focus on profits rather than safety led to the tragic event that left hundreds of people grieving the loss of their family members, friends, and community. The nation of South Korea was collectively left in a state of mourning, confusion, and anger. And one study found in an annual survey of over 7,000 people after the event that the rates of depression, stress, anxiety, and suicide ideation spiked dramatically. While the new safety measures may be a good start, the lack of accountability for the officials complicit in that corruption that led to this heartbreaking disaster does not help to prevent another. People must come before money and care must come before greed. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. Hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode about the Seawool Ferry, and I'll see you in the next one. 
Bye.